One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Packers at Falcons. Kickoff Sunday, September 17th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 40 and a half. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. Both of these teams started their seasons with strong divisional wins, but still have a lot to prove in terms of their viability as contenders. This game will require efficiency if it is going to have much scoring, as both teams play at a very slow pace. Aaron Jones and Christian Watson's hamstring injuries loom large over the potential for the Packers' offense. Desmond Ritter has more receptions than Drake London this season. The Falcons' offensive philosophy naturally attacks the weakest part of the Packers' defense in the running game. From a usage perspective, we should expect the Falcons' running backs to hog the ball and the Packers' passing game to be very spread out. How Green Bay will try to win. How will the Packers play without Aaron Rodgers? That was the biggest question for this team entering Week 1. Playing without star-wide receiver Christian Watson, the Packers were predictably balanced and leaned heavily on their running backs. Excluding their drive in the final two minutes of the first half, the Packers' offense had a 52.5% pass rate through three quarters, 21 pass plays, and 19 rush attempts. That number would have ranked outside the top 20 in the league for the 2022 NFL season. This week, Watson and running back Aaron Jones missed practice both Wednesday and Thursday, leaving their statuses for Sunday's matchup with the Falcons in doubt. Watson and Jones are both battling hamstring injuries, which are notoriously difficult to predict and one of the more commonly aggravated injuries you can have. Given the explosive nature of both players and how key they are to the team's long-term aspirations, it would make sense that the Packers would take a conservative approach here, which is why I am working under the assumption that these two will not be available this week or will be very limited if they are active. So what next? A.J. Dillon will work as a true feature back, with Patrick Taylor mixing in for spot work and breathers. Taylor actually got some work late in last week's blowout of the Bears, but there's a big gap between him and Dillon, which is why Dillon should be viewed as the feature back. In the passing game, Romeo Dobbs got all the accolades from Week 1 because of his two touchdown receptions. But this was a pretty well-balanced attack as seven players had more than one target, but no one had more than five. While it was only one week, Jordan Love had the fifth-highest average intended air yards in the NFL as the Packers showed a willingness to let him be aggressive. Granted, this was against a Bears defense that looked like it was still a long way to go before being competitive, but the signs were encouraging for Love and not just because of the three touchdown passes. This week, the Packers are playing an Atlanta team whose defense performed very well in Week 1, albeit against a work-in-progress Carolina offense. The Packers are coming off a very good performance and are likely going to be without their top two offensive weapons, which means that they are unlikely to shake things up from their balanced approach in this spot. They will rely on their defense to keep them in it and control the clock in possession. Given the nature of Atlanta's approach, we should expect a healthy dose of A.J. Dillon this week and Green Bay to once again have a very broad distribution of targets. Tight end Luke Musgrave led the Packers' skill players in snaps in Week 1 and couldn't have the best on-paper matchup this week after the Falcons gave up a good game to Hayden Hurst in Week 1. The Falcons blitzed on less than 20% of their defensive snaps in Week 1, the 6th lowest rate in the league, which should allow Love time to continue pushing the ball downfield and also allow Musgrave to be out running routes rather than staying in to chip blitzers. How Atlanta will try to win. Process over results, they say. Tell that to Arthur Smith, who gave former top 10 NFL draft picks Kyle Pitts and Drake London a combined 5 targets on 48 offensive snaps in what was a one-possession game until late in the fourth quarter. That's a bold move, Arthur. 
The Falcons also won, technically, so it worked. But for the physical tools those two possess, it sure seems like Atlanta has no chance of maximizing their potential unless they find ways to involve them more. The running game was heavily utilized, with Tyler Algier and Bijan Robinson touching the ball in a combined 71% of the Falcons' offensive plays. Algier continued to look as strong as how he ended 2022, breaking off some runs and scoring two touchdowns, while Robinson's explosive game-changing ability was on display whenever he touched the ball. This week, the Packers bring an opportunistic defense to town that can pressure the quarterback and has some talent in their secondary. Last year, the Packers were by far more susceptible on the ground than through the air, which theoretically fits perfectly with the Falcons' approach. If the Falcons weren't making it a priority to involve London and Pitts against the Panthers, I have a hard time believing that Jair Alexander and company would be the spot Arthur Smith decides to open things up, unless he is forced to do so. We should once again expect a methodical, run-heavy offensive approach that heavily involves the running backs in the passing game as well. Algier and Robinson combined for 50% target share on Desmond Ritter's pass attempts. We may see a couple of shot plays, and Pitts is the most likely weapon to be used in the middle of the field, but this Atlanta team should be viewed as one of the more predictable units in the league in any matchup like this where the opponent is likely to strike fear in them entering or during the game with scoring outbursts. Likeliest Game Flow This one has snoozefest written all over it. There are some explosive players involved, and all it ever takes in an NFL game is one or two plays to break things open, but both teams clearly have no desire at this point to want to open things up. Additionally, the positive reinforcement of Week 1 victories is likely to have them both in a if-it-ain't-broke-don't-fix-it mentality entering this game. What you are left with are two teams who want to run the ball often and milk the play clock. One of these teams is going to be missing their explosive weapons due to injury, and the other due to coaching. It is a classic situation where neither team is likely to do enough to force the other one to open things up, which will result in the play clock moving fast and a relatively low amount of plays in the game. This game should be close deep into the second half, and a low-scoring affair is the most likely outcome. Ravens at Bengals. Kickoff Sunday, September 17th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 46.5. Game Overview by Hilo. J.K. Dobbins was lost for the season in Week 1 after suffering a torn Achilles. Mark Andrews got in a limited session on Wednesday and is tentatively expected to return from his one-game absence due to a quad injury. The Ravens had two starting offensive linemen miss practice entirely on Wednesday, which is a situation to monitor during the coming days. The Bengals are fresh off an absolute dismantling at the hands of the Browns. I would expect this team to come out firing in an attempt to right the ship. T. Higgins in Week 1, 150 air yards, 8 targets, 0 catches. Baltimore's defense uses inflated rates of zone coverages under coordinator Mike McDonald, which doesn't necessarily narrow down the expected path for Bengals targets to flow. How Baltimore will try to win. We thought we had a good idea of how the Ravens were going to try and win games this season. Spoiler alert, their week one game went nothing like we thought we were going to see. To be fair, tight end Mark Andrews missed that contest with a quad injury, meaning we could see this offense morph once again in week two. Andrews got in a limited practice on Wednesday while the team was without center Tyler Linderbaum and left tackle Ronnie Stanley, each of whom did not practice. The respective statuses of the offensive linemen are worth monitoring throughout the remainder of the week as Sunday approaches as their absences would be yet another nudge in the direction of increased pass game utilization. Summing up the state of this team right now, we have a new and expected to be aggressive offensive coordinator in Todd Monken, two missing offensive linemen as of Thursday afternoon, an alpha tight end expected to return, and a backfield that currently consists of journeyman and mediocrity Justice Hill, Gus Edwards, and potentially Melvin Gordon. 
I say all that to somewhat lead the horse to water, but this offense still ran 21 personnel, an insane 44% of the time in week one, albeit in a positive game script and without their alpha pass catcher. More on this later. We've spoken to the continued usage of fullback Patrick Richard before, which we shouldn't be overly shocked to see, but at the same time, we're quietly hoping got nerfed under new tutelage. Where the team goes with their offensive alignments without their top rusher, and while getting their top pass catcher back, remains to be seen, but we saw an offense built around 21 and 11 personnel in week one. I would loosely expect that trend to continue. The backfield is now in the questionably capable hands of Justice Hill, Gus Edwards, and potentially Melvin Gordon after the injury to J.K. Dobbins. We know who these backs are at this point in their respective careers. I would expect Edwards to be the primary short yardage and early down back, Hill to be the change of pace and passing down entity, and Gordon to mix in to some extent as a secondary change of pace option. The Bengals are fresh off an opening weekend dismantling at the hands of the Cleveland Browns, a game where multiple players set career lows in counting stats. They did cede 5.2 yards per carry to Cleveland backs, but this is Nick Chubb behind one of the top offensive lines in the league we're talking about. The snap rates amongst Baltimore pass catchers in Week 1 were not exactly as we expected entering the season. Veteran wide receiver Odell Beckham Jr. led the way with a massive 92% snap rate share, followed by rookie first-rounder Zay Flowers at 84%, tight end Isaiah Likely at 72%, and a shared downfield role between former first-rounder Rashad Bateman and journeyman deep-wide receiver Nelson Aguilar, 39% and 38% respectively. The modest 11 personnel rates were influenced by the continued usage of Rashad, as was discussed earlier. That 21 personnel usage is interesting to dissect, as it could equate to a relatively consistent slot snap rate from tight end Mark Andrews, assuming Richard now becomes more of an additional blocker out of the backfield, or the team could shift to heavier rates of 11 personnel in a more formidable matchup. I don't know. But that's exactly what this side of the game brings, a massively wide range of potential outcomes as far as how we expect them to approach this spot. One last word on the Ravens. Zay Flowers is the absolute truth and gives off some serious alpha vibes. How Cincinnati will try to win. The Bengals left week one with a 25th ranked pass rate over expectation, PROE, and 14th ranked situation neutral pace of play. But there is significant noise associated with those values considering a few factors. One, Joe Burrow had very little practice time this offseason while dealing with his calf strain. Two, the Bengals played in some miserable conditions in Cleveland. And three, the Browns are probably a better defense than most people either realize or want to admit this year. Cincinnati actually played with their typical pace a week ago, running a play every 26.9 seconds on the road and in poor field conditions. And while PROE helps to explain a team's tendencies without significant outside factors such as game environment, situation, score, etc., the truth of the matter is the Bengals ran just 56 offensive plays, only 52 of which were played with the starters on the field, and they managed 31 pass attempts and just 18 rush attempts, if you take away the two kneel downs. This appears to very much still be a team looking to attack viciously through the air. Now consider their opponent in Week 2, a Ravens team that has consistently been amongst the better teams against the run with nose tackle Michael Pierce on the field, and we should expect the Bengals to largely focus on an aerial attack. Primary back Joe Mixon handled 63% of the team's snaps in Week 1, which should more or less represent a close-to-median number throughout the season, considering previous usage trends out of Cincinnati. That said, he dominated the backfield usage with 18 running back opportunities out of an available 23, good for a solid 78.3% team opportunity share. Again, that appears likely to carry forward. What's more, five of those opportunities came through the air a season after he set career highs in pass game usage and total targets. 
As we alluded to earlier, the matchup on the ground is about as difficult as the Bengals will find this year, meaning Mixon will likely need multiple touchdowns on top of pass game usage to provide a GPP-worthy score at his salary. He is going to rush for more than 100 yards in this spot very infrequently. Expect Trayvon Williams and Chris Evans to be involved as a change of pace options. Ravens defensive coordinator Mike McDonald runs a more varied approach than his predecessor in Wink Martindale. Historically, that has meant increased usage of cover two, quarters, Tampa two, and even cover six from dime. From a micro matchup perspective, the gap in fantasy production between Jamar Chase and T. Higgins has been smaller against zone coverages than it has been against man, where Chase has separated himself significantly over the previous two seasons. Those types of coverages also typically bias production to the intermediate middle of the field, the areas of the field where we typically see slot wide receivers, tight ends, and pass catching running backs work. All of that to say, there isn't a micro matchup data point that clearly points to one member of the pass catchers over any other in this spot. We should expect the Bengals to run increased rates of 11 personnel with a tight core of primary skill position players, but outside of that, there isn't much to single out any one member from this matchup. Likeliest Game Flow We can be fairly certain the Bengals will largely want to attack through the air here, considering the presence of Michael Pierce and a defensive line that has consistently performed near the top of the league against the run in recent history. That said, the Ravens carry an extremely wide range of potential outcomes regarding how we expect them to behave in this spot. A lot of that is introduced through a snapshot in time when they didn't have all their offensive pieces, but that is exactly what they will be dealing with this week as well. I think a lot of those variables will be dictated by the presence or absence of two of their starting offensive linemen, but the big picture here is that we could be thrown for a loop by this team in consecutive weeks. This game environment clearly has a better shot of outperforming its expectations than in other spots around the slate, but we must be honest with the fact that it carries a wide range of potential outcomes, primarily induced through the Ravens. As such, this is yet another spot on this slate where I will likely be looking to expected ownership as a primary deciding factor. With that in mind, both of these teams are coming in with either significant uncertainty, the Ravens, or significant recency biases attached to them, the Bengals. Seahawks at Lions. Kickoff Sunday, September 17th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 47 and a half. Game Overview by Hilo. Detroit inexplicably played zero upside Josh Reynolds and Dinosaur Bones Marvin Jones over the field stretcher they so desperately need on this offense in Khalil Raymond, in lieu of Jameson Williams, in week one against the Chiefs. Both of these defenses have improved dramatically since the last time these two teams met in week four of 2022, a game that broke the slate with 93 combined points. Those improvements start in the linebacking core of each team, which is a staple in the standard 3-4 Tampa 2 base for the Seahawks under Pete Carroll and should help the Lions perform better against the run this season. Jack Campbell is an athletic monster freak. This game total opened at 50.5 and has already, as of Wednesday night, been bet down to 47.5 after bouncing off 47. Notable, for sure. It is highly likely both teams are looking to control this game on the ground, which saps a lot of the upside from the expected game environment. How Seattle will try to win. The Seahawks are a team built around their Tampa 2 outside in 3-4 defense and the run game. The pass game is simply a product of the success from those two areas. Even with the selection of Jackson Smith and Jigba in the first round, offensive coordinator Shane Waldron carried over the same offensive design into 2023 that includes increased rates of 12 personnel. We did get a glimmer of hope in the team's moderate pace, 16th in situation neutral pace of play, and 11th in seconds per play and 10th ranked pass rate over expectation in week one, but the overall design of the offense appeared extremely similar to what we have seen in the past, 
which is not necessarily good considering the talent of JSN. Furthermore, the Seahawks are largely a team that looks to win on the ground unless otherwise sparked, meaning typically the only way they provide the spark to game environments is via explosive runs early. The last time these two teams met, week 4 of 2022, Seattle surged to a commanding 31-15 lead after an interception returned for a touchdown on the first play from scrimmage of the second half. Rashad Penny erupted for 36-yard and 41-yard touchdowns from that point forward, and the Lions did their best, oh shit, it's catch-up time, through TJ Hawkinson, Amon Ra missed the game. What was most troubling to see from the Seahawks in Week 1 was that quarterback Geno Smith boasted a 4.9 average intended air yards on an offense that has DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, and now Smith and Jigba against the Rams. Geno had all of 42 completed air yards in that game. His completed air yards per pass attempt was higher than just Joe Burrow, Daniel Jones, and Bryce Young. Okay, this one makes sense. That leaves a rather massive question for us this week. Can Waldron integrate the dynamism they have through the air to make it so the offense isn't overly reliant on the success of the run game? The Seahawks managed a solid 4.7 yards per carry against the Rams in Week 1. Kenneth Walker was responsible for a solid 5.3 yards per carry, but only saw 18 total carries and a laughable 51 offensive plays against the Rams. Pete Carroll and Shane Waldron let the game completely come to them after taking a 13-7 lead into half. Their second-half drives consisted of three three-and-outs and one drive where they picked up a first down via penalty. Through that ineptitude, Kenneth Walker saw only three second-half carries and two second-half targets, meaning his nine first-half carries and three first-half targets tell the larger story of what to expect in a more neutral situation. Also, Walker operated as a true lead-back, garnering a solid 63% snap rate compared to 24% for rookie Zach Charbonnet and 22% for DJ Dallas the latter of whom saw work exclusively in the two-minute drill and obvious passing downs. If I know Carroll and Waldron, I think I do, I'd guess we're likely to see this team try to get back to their roots, which involves a game plan built around the run with passing layered in off of that. The matchup on the ground should be considered largely neutral after the Lions held Kansas City backs to 3.9 yards per carry in Week 1. But we know the Chiefs aren't going to be an insanely good rushing team this year, considering it's Clyde Edwards-Hilaire and Isaiah Pacheco leading the charge. It appears as if this pass game is going to be your run-of-the-mill 60-65% 11 personnel, 20-25% 12 personnel shell. Metcalf played almost every offensive snap in Week 1, and Lockett was on his way to doing the same until he was removed to be evaluated for a concussion. He would gain clearance and return. JSN settled into the true slot from 11 personnel tool in this offense, which has to be frustrating to those that sunk significant draft capital into him in best ball. That change also kicked Lockett into heavier perimeter snaps, which we expected entering the season. It's not as if Lockett can't play on the perimeter, but 112 of his 224 targets over the previous two seasons came with him aligned in the slot. 405 of his total 1,666 offensive snaps came from the slot during those two seasons, meaning he saw 50% of his targets on just 24.3% of his total snap share from the slot over the previous two seasons. That could be damaging to his weekly upside. Surprisingly enough, Metcalf ran the same percentage of snaps from the slot in Week 1 when compared to Lockett, 50%. Tight ends Noah Fant, Colby Parkinson, and Will Disley all operated with snap rates between 31% and 49% and are not viable weekly plays. How Detroit will try to win. The Lions badly need Jamison Williams. It's really as simple as that. In their Week 1 opener against the Chiefs, Detroit hauled the mail, so to speak, with no true ability to attack downfield or manipulate the safeties of Steve Spagnuolo's defense. Instead, 
forced into a more march-the-field-and-control-the-ball mentality. Quarterback Jared Goff finished Week 1 with the 20th-ranked average intended air yards, 6.8, and the team carried the 27th-ranked pass rate over expectation value. That said, they still played with pace on offense, sporting the 11th-fastest situation-neutral pace of play, and checking in at 14th in seconds per play, 28. But again, this team needs that downfield option considering the bulk of their pass catchers operate in the short-to-intermediate areas of the field. All of Amon Ross St. Brown, Sam Laporta, Jameer Gibbs, Marvin Jones, and Josh Reynolds were primarily running routes within the first 10 to 15 yards of the line of scrimmage against the Chiefs, which allowed their safeties to creep up closer to the linebackers and clog the middle of the field. The biggest head-scratcher to me is the fact that the Lions have somebody on their roster that is fully capable in the Jamison Williams role, experienced veteran Khalif Raymond, who runs a 4-3-2-40 and has proven success working in a downfield role. And yet, they chose to play him on only 27% of the team's offensive snaps in favor of Zero Upside Josh and Dinosaur Bones Jones. Particularly against the Cover 2 Tampa 2 base of the Seahawks, the Lions would do well to get Raymond on the field at greater frequency in this one. Man, Dan Campbell was not joking about easing Gibbs in this season. Gibbs played only 27% of the team's offensive snaps in Week 1, handling just 7 carries and 2 targets. That left an elite 79% snap share for lead back David Montgomery, who parlayed that time on the field into 21 carries, 74 yards, and one touchdown, good for 3.5 yards per carry. Montgomery was not targeted through the air in what amounted to a pure rushing role. I would be hesitant to expect the same snap share split moving forward, particularly considering the Lions have had a long week to prepare for this game against the Seahawks. They opened the season on Thursday Night Football in Week 1. The Seahawks are largely the same defense that we have seen over the previous decade plus, but now they have a retooled linebacking unit that they were sorely missing in 2022. Longtime staple Bobby Wagner returned to the place where he started his career this offseason, and Seattle also added Uchena Nwosu, both of whom should do wonders for the Tampa 2-based unit. That likely means the Seahawks will be better prepared to handle opposing run games and tight end units this season, which we saw transpire in their Week 1 loss to the Rams, where they held Rams backs to just 2.3 yards per carry. Yes, it was the Rams. Either way, the matchup on the ground does not appear to be as fruitful as it was last year, considering the offseason additions to the defense. Watching that Thursday night football game against the Chiefs was difficult, to be honest. The Lions came out with the upset victory in Arrowhead, but their offense was one-dimensional and lacked much in the way of bulk potential. Marvin Jones and Josh Reynolds both looked lost and, honestly, looked to be disinterested. Each player had multiple mental mistakes throughout the game, and yet the team kept throwing them onto the field. As was dissected earlier, this team needs that downfield element to truly open up their offense, which was why it was so weird for me to see Jones and Reynolds on the field over Khalif Raymond. Whether or not the team realizes that or not remains to be seen, but the offense lacks much in the way of explosiveness if opposing teams can simply cheat safeties down and clog the middle of the field with linebackers and safeties. Against the 3-4 Tampa 2 base the Seahawks run, this could become an issue. Amon Ross St. Brown is the truth, and I saw things out of him in camp that I had not seen from him to this point in his career. In my mind, he went from fine volume play to truly elite wide receiver this offseason. He should continue leading this aerial attack, but this matchup does not set up well for him to do much damage once the ball is in his hands, unless the Lions can keep those safeties honest by playing Raymond. Laporta and Gibbs would theoretically be next in line for volume, assuming Gibbs sees his snap rate increase from Week 2. As you can tell from the previous, I'm not too keen on Marvin Jones or Josh Reynolds at this point in their respective careers. 
Likeliest game flow. Overall, these two teams are pretty different from the teams we saw ignite for 93 combined points in Week 4 of the 2022 season. TJ Hawkinson is no longer in Detroit to take advantage of a linebacking core that is now much improved compared to last season. Detroit's own linebacking unit is vastly improved from the team that surrendered 151 yards and two touchdowns to Rashad Penny last year. It appears as if Vegas is seeing the same things as this line opened at 50.5 and has already been bet down to 47.5, having bounced off the magic betting barrier of 47. Quick side note, this is why we track line movements and talk about them prior to the slate kicking off in an email delivered to your inboxes. That said, there are two primary paths to this game erupting. Either the Lions play Khalif Raymond at an increased rate to open things up underneath, or Kenneth Walker breaks free for long runs early in the game. Each outcome is not particularly likely, but either act would theoretically open things up for this game environment. As such, my interest here likely comes down to ownership from a macro perspective. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Colts at Texans. Kickoff Sunday, September 17th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 39.5. Game Overview by Hilo. Surprisingly, both the Colts and Texans ran up-tempo offenses in Week 1, ranking 3rd and 4th in seconds per play, respectively. Houston seeded just 3.4 yards per carry and held the Ravens to 5.4 intended air yards per pass attempt. Indianapolis had two starting offensive linemen listed as DNP on Wednesday's practice report. Zach Moss was a full participant in practice Wednesday and is likely to overtake the lead role in the backfield from Deion Jackson. The Texans are extremely thin along the offensive line. Nico Collins led the league in percentage of team air yards in Week 1, 64%, and saw 11 targets. Damian Pierce was not the unquestioned lead borderline workhorse back we saw in the preseason. How Indianapolis will try to win The Colts gave us a solid glimpse into what their offense is expected to look like in Week 1, ranking third in seconds per play at 22.9. Remember, they ran the fastest offense in the league during the preseason ranking 7th in total pass volume at 39 pass attempts, and finishing 26th in intended air yards per pass attempt. This is a departure from what we largely saw in the preseason. Mega-athletic quarterback Anthony Richardson accounted for 10 of the team's 26 rush attempts, and Michael Pittman garnered an elite 29.7% team target market share, 11 targets on 39 team pass attempts. Richardson was forced from the game late in the fourth quarter with a knee injury following a red zone rush attempt which would fundamentally alter how we expect Shane Steichen and company to approach the game plan for this one. That said, Richardson wasn't even listed on the team's initial injury report this week. The fantasy community breathes a collective sigh of relief because Richardson is one of the most intriguing players to step foot on a football field this year. The run game got both good and bad news this week as rookie Evan Hull hit injured reserve. Zach Moss was a full participant in practice Wednesday, and guard Quentin Nelson and tackle Brandon Smith both missed practice Wednesday. As things currently stand, I expect Moss to return from a broken arm suffered in the preseason to reclaim the lead role, while the two offensive linemen are situations worth monitoring considering the Colts boast a top 10 unit on paper. Either way, this should be considered a strength-on-strength matchup after the Texans held the Ravens to just 3.4 yards per carry in Week 1. The fantasy points against numbers will not look pretty after the Texans seeded three rushing scores against, but those scores came from 4 yards, 2 yards, and 2 yards out. In other words, I don't expect the Colts, considering the offensive minds behind the design of their offense, to lean on the ground game in this matchup. The obvious exception to that assertion is via the legs of Richardson, who should see a floor of 8-12 carries in a standard week, with an upside for much more. 
The heavy zone rates and moderate blitz rates from the Texans predictably led to a low defensive ADOT against in their week one game with the Ravens, 5.4, sixth shallowest in the league, which shouldn't be the case again here after the Colts were fine attacking the short to intermediate areas of the field in week one. Indianapolis ran an offense based primarily from 11 personnel in week one, with Michael Pittman and Alec Pierce operating as nearly every down wide receivers, Josh Downs operating as the primary slot weapon with a healthy 79% snap rate, and sprinkles of 12 personnel mixed in with Kylan Granson operating as the primary tight end, 61% snap rate. Mo Ali Cox, the starter and best all-around tight end left on the roster, 42% snap rate, and Drew Ogletree mixing in for heavy alignments, 21% snap rate. This looks like another game where the Colts will be fine running an up-tempo offense focused on the athleticism of Richardson and the intermediate abilities of Michael Pittman. How Houston will try to win. Houston turned some heads, or at least they turned mine, in week one when they came out with the third fastest situation neutral pace of play and ninth highest pass rate over expectation. Some, or maybe most, of that can be explained by a matchup with a Ravens team consistently ranked near the top of the league in yards allowed per carry, but we have a similar setup in week two against the Colts. The Colts allowed just 3.0 yards per carry in their opening game against the Jaguars, compared to 3.1 for the Ravens. Without a doubt, the strength of the Indianapolis defense resides in the front seven, with athleticism and elite ability strewn throughout. That said, the back half of their defense is filled with projects and late-round draft picks. Whether or not the Texans choose to approach their game planning in the same fashion remains to be seen, but the path of least resistance against this unit is most certainly to attack the lack of experience they have in the secondary. The biggest problem with that setup is the state of the Houston offensive line, which could once again be without three starters heading into week two. Against DeForest Buckner, Quiddy Pay, Samson Abukam, Shaquille Leonard, Zaire Franklin, and EJ Speed, that could confine their offense to mostly quick-hitting aerial work. Damian Pierce went from an unquestioned lead back with a borderline workhorse role in the preseason to a 45% snap rate, low upside timeshare back in week one. He saw the first two drives to himself before giving way to Devin Singletary on the third. In total, Pierce saw three drives largely to himself in the first half to two drives for Singletary, with Mike Boone seeing extensive run in the second half after the Texans went down by multiple scores. The game was 7-6 entering the break. Based on what we saw in the preseason, how those tendencies changed when trailing, and the first half breakdown in snaps and opportunities, I would expect the Texans to operate with a lead back and change of pace back base, with Boone likely on the outside looking in in competitive environments. That means a likely 60-65% snap rate and opportunity share for Pierce, and the remainder left to Singletary in most weeks. Unless, of course, the Texans are getting blown out in most weeks, something that is entirely possible. As mentioned earlier, the matchup on the ground is not a good one, and I see a viable path to offensive coordinator Bobby Slowick game-planning a more aerial-based attack against the Colts. Tight end Dalton Schultz led the pass-catching core in snap rate to open the season, checking in at a moderate 81% snap rate share. Robert Woods and Nico Collins each finished in the 70-75% to snap rate range, followed by the now-injured Noah Brown. I expect the snap rates of Woods, Collins, and rookie Tank Dell to increase after Brown hit injured reserve this week. The Texans ran a very average 21% 12 personnel rate in Week 1, which is likely to remain around that range in negative game environments and increase slightly in more neutral to positive environments. Most notably from Week 1, Collins commanded a robust 64% share of the team's available air yards, which led the league. His 11 targets finished tied for 6th. Considering the borderline elite linebacking unit in Indianapolis and its propensity to tilt opponents to the air, Collins is set up well to once again lead the team in receiving and challenge for the highest raw target number on the week. His plus ADOT and massive share of the downfield work combined for a nice range of outcomes moving forward.
Woods unsurprisingly operated in a safety blanket role for the Texans, with the majority of his targets coming within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage, compared to 10 to 20 for Collins. Noah Brown operated almost exclusively in the short area. It will be interesting to see how Dell changes that composition here. Schultz was in a route at a 91% clip in week one, meaning his two for four showing was likely the outlier. That said, and as was previously mentioned, the matchup this week for tight ends is not ideal. Likeliest game flow. It is likely both teams largely struggle to sustain drives, considering the offensive line woes, the fact that each team has a rookie quarterback in their second NFL start, and each respective defensive philosophy. That said, there are some interesting pieces from this game due to the heavy concentration of volume from each side. Player pricing, expected ownership, and overall state of the slate will be factors in deciding if any of these players will be worthy of late-week condensed player pool consideration due to the low likelihood of this game environment erupting, but there are some interesting pieces here nonetheless. Another consideration in that discussion is that there are multiple paths to explosive plays developing, which we know to look for when attacking specific game environments. More on this line of thinking in the DFS Plus interpretation section on OneWeekSeason.com. Chiefs at Jaguars. Kickoff Sunday, September 17th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 51. Game Overview by Hilo. Center Luke Fortner and right guard Brandon Scherf did not practice Wednesday for the Jaguars. Tight end Travis Kelsey returned to a limited session Wednesday and appears to be on track to play in Week 2. The Chiefs did the right thing by holding him out in Week 1 to give him an extra week and a half to recover from his hyperextended knee. Running back Clyde Edwards-Hilaire missed practice Wednesday with an illness. He should be good to go come Sunday, enough to take the first two carries of the game and then disappear into irrelevance. Probably. Chris Jones returned to the Chiefs after missing Week 1 while disputing his contract. There are two very clear likeliest paths to eruption for this game environment, without which the game is likely to land near its median projection, currently installed with a game total of 51, and a relatively tight spread at Chiefs minus 3.5. How Kansas City will try to win Kansas City largely hasn't changed how it tries to win over the previous four seasons, giving us a fairly accurate expectation each time they play. That said, we should expect Kelsey to make his triumphant return to the lineup this week after hyperextending his knee two days before the team played its opening game on Thursday Night Football against the Lions. Unshockingly, the Chiefs left Week 1 with the highest pass rate over expectation, PROE, value of all 32 teams, a top 10 situation neutral pace of play, 9th, and the 8th fastest seconds per play value. The Chiefs will look to pass, mix up their situational play-calling tendencies to keep their opponents on their heels, target all areas of the field, and mix and match their pass catchers not named Travis Kelsey. That sets up an interesting matchup with a Jacksonville defense that is both fast and young. Opposing defensive coordinator Mike Caldwell is of the Todd Bowles coaching tree, typically running a 3-4 base with heavy blitz rates and a focus on stopping the run. Jacksonville blitzed at a 36.4% clip in Week 1 against the Colts, the Buccaneers were one of only four teams to blitz at a higher rate, Todd Bowles, and surrendered just two and a half yards per carry. The Buccaneers were one of four teams to allow lower yards per carry in week one, Todd Bowles, each confirming our previous assumptions. Knowing Andy Reid, that should mean more designed ball-out quick tendencies over the middle of the field here, with designed shots downfield strewn throughout the offensive design. The Chiefs' backfield was a veritable disaster in week one, at least for fantasy purposes. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire started the game, took the first two carries, and then saw just six more carries throughout the remainder of the game. He finished with a 22% snap rate. Presumed lead rusher Isaiah Pacheco finished with eight carries and four targets on 48% of the offensive snaps. Change of pace extraordinaire and typical passing down back Jarek McKinnon finished with zero carries and just two targets on 31% of the offensive snaps. 
If ever there was a game to expect a bump to the already high pass rates for the Chiefs, this would be it. Not much else going on here. While the backs rotated through at a maddening rate, the wide receivers might have been more extreme. All seven active wide receivers saw snaps for the Chiefs in Week 1, led by Sky Moore, 69%, and Marquez Valdez-Scantling, 63%. Richie James, 35%, Rasheed Rice, 31%, Justin Watson, 29%, Kadarius Toney, 25%, and even Justin Ross, 9%, all saw snaps behind the two starters. At tight end, Noah Gray made a play at his best Kelsey impression, playing on 88% of the offensive snaps and routinely serving as Patrick Mahomes' outlet underneath. Blake Bell played a standard for him 40% of the offensive snaps to up the team's 12 personnel usage. With Kelsey set to return, it is likely he is the lone near every down player in this offense moving forward. It is worth mentioning, or worth re-emphasizing, just how poorly Tony played, dropping multiple passes and looking lost and disinterested last Thursday. One of those drops resulted in a pick six to open the third quarter. Not good, Bob. Not good. MVS should continue to be near the team lead in snaps as the safety manipulator in this offense, while Moore should continue in a similar role after separating from the crowd in camp. But neither of these roles is likely to provide any semblance of elevated median projection, considering the relatively low snap rates. But again, this team is going to pass, and pass often, leaving some, albeit slim paths, to GPP goodness, maybe just for MME for the time being. Based on the aforementioned defensive tendencies from the Jaguars, This sets up as a Kelsey game. How Jacksonville will try to win. Dating back to last season under Doug Peterson, the Jaguars have been largely subject to game environment in their offensive game design and management. That said, we should expect their game plan coming into this one to be of the more run-balanced variety, with in-game adjustments then left up to what situation they find themselves in throughout the game. The Jaguars finished the 2022 season ranked 12th in PROE, which they checked in ranked 19th leaving Week 1. Their pace has also notoriously been tied to the game environment, checking in at 23rd in a Week 1 game which was relatively low-scoring and tight throughout. Against the Chiefs, it is likely these tendencies carry forward as part of the game plan coming into the game, which would then be adjusted depending on the game environment itself. It was Tank Bigsby that scored the first rushing touchdown for the Jaguars of 2023, but we have to realize he was only in the game for a punitive 21% snap rate, 15 offensive snaps. That left the volume and usage of one Travis Etienne amongst the leaders at the position in Week 1. Etienne played a solid 80% snap rate and handled 23 of an available 32 total running back opportunities, 56.26% team opportunity share, consisting of 18 carries and 5 targets. He was the unquestioned lead dog in this one and represents an interesting fantasy option considering the negative biases towards him near the end of the best ball draft cycle. As in, there are pure paths, considering matchup, team tendencies, and previous production, to 100 yards on the ground, multiple scores, plus receiving work here. Bigsby should remain on hand to soak up whatever is left behind by ETN, with the biggest knock to ETN's expectation appearing to be the rookie's penchant for short yardage work, which, during the preseason and week one of the regular season, included goal line work. Bigsby's touchdown from week one came from one yard out. Calvin Ridley immediately put the doubters on ice to open the season, flashing his elite athleticism, speed, and ability to win across multiple levels. His 34.4% team target share and 33.3% targets per route run rate place him amongst the elites at the position, both settling in the top 12 to start the season. He was also in a route on every called pass play. If I were sitting in Luce Bagnolo's shoes right now, it would be Ridley that I was scheming up additional attention here. Zay Jones actually led the team in snap rate among skill position players, responsible for a hefty 89% snap rate and seeing 7 targets on the day, 
21.9% team target market share. That relegated Christian Kirk to exclusive slot duties and a 60% snap rate, far below where drafters were hoping coming into the season. The team ran almost 50% of its snaps from 12 personnel in Week 1, which could once again be the case in Week 2 considering their likeliest plan of attack against the Chiefs. That should again serve to limit Kirk's upside in this spot. Tight end Evan Ingram played a below-elite 73% snap rate, but he was in a route at an elite 96.9% rate of called pass plays. He should continue to serve as a variant tight end option, albeit with elite upside in that role. Likeliest game flow. It is likeliest we see the Chiefs come out firing after being blindsided to open the season, particularly considering we expect Kelsey to return to the lineup. Their team tendencies align with the matchup here, which provides viable pass to 40-plus pass attempts from Patrick Mahomes in a neutral-ish matchup. The Jaguars should be expected to run a more neutral offense to accomplish multiple goals as described above. Considering the relative concentration amongst the primary pieces from the Jags, this does not preclude them from viability in this spot. Rather, it serves as a reminder of how teams typically approach games against Kansas City. As such, the paths to this game truly opening up rest with either Etienne or Ridley, as we can already expect the Chiefs to be throwing caution to the wind in this spot. The biggest concerns with that expectation are the injuries to the Jaguars' offensive line and the return of Jones to the defensive front for the Chiefs. Bears at Bucks. Kickoff Sunday, September 17th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 41. Game Overview by Pappy. This isn't a great game environment for DFS, but it does have high upside outcomes. DJ Moore was criminally underused last week and should see some scheme targets. Mike Evans looks like he can succeed with Baker Mayfield at QB. Rashad White saw elite usage for his price. How Chicago will try to win. The Bears are fresh off a 38-20 home loss to division rival Green Bay, who many were expecting to have a rebuilding year after Aaron Rodgers left town. Expectations for the Bears were sky-high after a strong preseason performance and the addition of new offensive weapons. Everyone might have confused Justin Fields' fantasy football success with real-life football success, but yeah, what is the difference between those two again? The Bears left many wanting more in their home opener, and a lot of questions are now being asked about the future of the organization. This is as close to a must-win for a coaching staff as you can have in Week 2. Matt, can I get a clue? Eberflus returned because of Justin Fields' development towards the end of the year. I use development sarcastically because I'm fairly certain that even the Bears coaching staff confused fantasy football glory with real-life success. Did Justin Fields demonstrate he is an incredibly talented runner? Absolutely. Did he show that he is an NFL-talented passer? Never. Should someone give Eberflus a clue that yards count the same if you run or pass for them in the NFL? Rushing yards only count for more in our game. The Buccaneers' defense was decidedly average in Week 1, with a mediocre showing against the run and pass. Eberflus is more of a we-do-our-thing coach than an adaptable one anyway, which makes him easier to predict, for us and opposing teams. The Bears had a pass-run split of 37-29, to with 9 of those runs from fields, in a game they lost by 3 scores. It looks like they still want to lean into the run and short passing game as much as possible. Expect the Bears to try and get the running game working, but expect them to be willing to go into a pass-heavy, let-fields-win-or-lose-it game plan if they fall behind. How Tampa Bay will try to win. The Buccaneers were one of the biggest surprises of Week 1. They went into Minnesota as 5-point underdogs and beat a Vikings team that has playoff aspirations. The Bucs were expected to be in rebuilding mode after Tom Brady's departure, but Baker Mayfield had other plans. Todd Bowles returned for his second season and looks like he wants to run a more balanced offense this year. 
Stats like pace and passing play percentage are typically not worth talking about after only one week of data because they're so impacted by game flow, but the Bucks played a close 20-17 game that was always within one score. That type of game provides more insight into how a team wants to play if given the opportunity to stay true to their game plan. The Bucks' pass-run splits were 34-33, eight of those carries were Mayfield, but that's far from their pass-happy ways of prior years. The Bears' defense looked awful in Week 1. They were skewed by the pass, 29th in DVOA, and trampled on the ground, 29th in DVOA. This isn't a talented Bears roster on the defensive side of the ball, and even though Jordan Love is likely better than he has been given credit for, they were still facing a QB in one of his first career starts who was missing his number one wide receiver, with his number two wide receiver coming into the game fresh off a hamstring injury. That amounted to the Bears getting beat mostly by two rookies, Luke Musgrave and Jordan Reed, with a little Aaron Jones thrown in for flavor. Since they are an attackable unit through the air or on the ground, and the Bucks want to be balanced anyway, expect them to attack with a mix of the run and pass for as long as the game stays close. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a low total of 41.5, as both teams come into it with a lot of questions on offense. The Bears coaching staff doesn't seem to know how to use their new talent, and even though the Bucks pulled off a Week 1 upset, they only scored 20 points. The Bucks looked much tougher on defense against a good Vikings offense than they did on the offensive side of the ball. Baker Mayfield deserves credit for playing well enough to win, but it was the Bucks' defense that really won the game. The most likely game flow is a grinded-out affair between two teams who are happy to be run-balanced for as long as the score stays close. Expect the game to stay close with a 1st-20 to 20 wins feel and the victor being decided by who makes fewer mistakes. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Chargers at the Titans kick off Sunday, September 17th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 45. Game Overview by Hilo. Joey Bosa, Austin Eckler, and Eric Kendricks all missed practice Wednesday. Eckler and Kendricks both carried NIR personal designations alongside their respective ankle and hamstring injuries, introducing some speculation and uncertainty surrounding their respective statuses for Sunday. I get the feeling the field and industry might put too much weight into how the Chargers chose to attack in Week 1. I'd be extremely interested to see the reaction to this team should Austin Eckler practice Thursday. I also get the feeling the field and industry might put too much weight into how the Titans managed their offense in Week 1. I'd be extremely interested to see the reaction to this team throughout the week. Both teams have a very clear path of least resistance. The Titans on the ground and the Chargers through the air. The Titans are likely looking to slow this game down, while the Chargers are likeliest to want to speed things up. DeAndre Hopkins missed Wednesday with an ankle injury, water is wet, and ice is cold. How Los Angeles will try to win I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the collective fantasy community is likely going to be spewing some, incorrect maybe, hot takes this week regarding Kellen Moore and these Chargers. On the surface, it appears as if Moore's promises of a more downfield approach with elevated pass rates were a farce. Friends, that simply is not the case. Or maybe it is. I don't know. We have a sample size of one. To me, the Chargers devised an offensive game plan that gave them the best chance to win the game against Vic Fangio and the Dolphins. 
Fangio is someone that doesn't blitz heavily, below average 19.4% in week one, plays heavy rates of zone through cover two and cover three, even some quarters and quarters press, and shifts his situational play-calling tendencies to confuse a quarterback throughout the game. The Chargers still played with pace, 10th ranked situation neutral pace of play and 6th ranked seconds per play, but simply took what their opposition gave them, 20th ranked pass rate over expectation, and it was working to boot. The Chargers gained 233 yards on the ground against the Dolphins, so you can't tell me the game plan was flawed here. Okay, so how does that relate to what to expect against the Titans? The matchup is about as polar opposite as one could expect. Yes, the Titans run a ton of zone coverage and blitz at comparable rates, 21.2% in Week 1. But they have consistently challenged for league-worst marks in defensive ADOT and explosive plays allowed through the air. All of that to say, if I'm sitting in Moore's shoes on Tuesday and Wednesday, I'm drawing up a game plan to play with pace and attack the intermediate to deep areas of the field against Tennessee. Austin Eckler missed practice on Wednesday with a listing of ankle-slash-nir-personal. Your guess is as good as mine as to what that means as far as his true status goes. We know he picked up an ankle injury in Week 1 because he missed two drives, the last of which was the team's final possession of the game. But we don't know how serious the ankle injury is just yet. That said, his immediate backup and regular change of pace back, Joshua Kelly, has proven to be more than capable for what the team is asking of their running back position. Either way, the matchup on the ground is far from ideal, which, in my mind, shifts the likely plan of attack towards the air. In typical Mike Vrabel fashion, the Titans allowed the Saints to rush for just 2.6 yards per carry. Jamal Williams had just 45 yards on 18 carries in Week 1. Their 3-4 base with heavy cover 2 utilization allows 7 men in the box on most plays, a number that can grow to 8 or 9 depending on situational play calling. Spoiler alert, it's difficult to run against the Titans. Those same tendencies also expose their secondary on a regular basis, and the team is now dealing with injuries to strong safety Amani Hooker, concussion, and cornerback Christian Fulton, hamstring, the year of our Lord, 2023. In the 2022 season, the Titans faced the most pass attempts against, 671, or 39.5 per game, and seeded a moderate 7.9 defensive A dot against. If that doesn't scream Keenan Allen, I don't know what does. As we've continued in this journey for how we expect the Chargers to attack the Titans, we've been building towards this moment, and that would only grow should Eckler miss this contest. Keenan was the only Chargers pass catcher to play more than 77% of the offensive snaps in Week 1, but fellow wideout Mike Williams left briefly after a scary collision, meaning he likely would have been up there in snaps as well. Behind those two, Joshua Palmer saw 64% of the offensive snaps, Quentin Johnson saw 27%, lols, tight end Gerald Everett saw 68%, and tight end Donald Parham saw 27%. The Titans ranked 20th in explosive play rate allowed through the air a season ago. Still bad, but not as bad as the industry would lead you to believe. Allen saw 46% of the team's available air yards on the back of nine targets, 27.27% target market share, in week one. All that said, Keenan represents the best path for the Chargers to move the football. 
But that does not necessarily mean he is a top range of outcomes play on this slate due to where he is priced and his relatively low likelihood of providing a score you couldn't win without. More on that in the DFS Plus section. But that leaves Mr. Soft Tissue and Concussion, otherwise known as Mike Williams. Whereas Allen is priced for his median and a low probability chance of outlier production, Williams is priced for a shaky median with an elite top end present in his range of outcomes for this spot. How Tennessee will try to win. I'm also going to go out on a limb and say that the collective fantasy community is going to be spewing some, incorrect maybe, hot takes regarding the week one usage split between Derrick Henry and Ty J. Spears. The first glaring, notable piece to realize about the Titans is that they no longer boast a top five offensive line. In fact, they have fallen from grace in the trenches about as fast as I have seen in recent history, all the way down to the unanimous bottom five unit for the 2023 season. That could help explain why Spears outsnapped Henry 54 to 48%. Another explanation I think might go overlooked is the offensive game plan against a Saints team that we knew was likely to try and take away what the Titans do best, power runs and short area passing. The Saints' defense operates from a 4-3, inside-out base alignment, whereas the Chargers' defense operates from a 3-4, outside-in base. As such, expect the Titans to see a completely different defensive philosophy against them in Week 2. I would not be at all surprised to see Henry back up around a 70% snap rate as the focal point of the offense here. Breaking that down further, Henry saw 18 running back opportunities on just 30 offensive snaps, good for an absolutely ridiculous 60% opportunity to snap rate. Compare that to 7 opportunities on 34 snaps for Spears, 20.6% opportunity to snap rate. And we can begin to make the case for Henry's ceiling should his snap rate increase due to the matchup. Using basic math, if Henry jumps to a 70% snap rate on an NFL average 65 offensive plays run from scrimmage for the Titans, he'd be looking at 27 running back opportunities, assuming that lofty touch rate remains static, which is a tall ass, to be fair. Look, I'm not saying Henry will see 27 opportunities against the Chargers. I'm saying that it is firmly within his range of outcomes here, and the field is highly likely going to overlook that part of his range of outcomes after what happened in week one. JM and I both spoke to the weird marriage of DeAndre Hopkins and Ryan Tannehill this offseason. Tannehill is a throw-you-open type quarterback that thrives on timing and anticipation. Hopkins is an aging wide receiver that wins with body positioning and contested catches at this point in his career. Even so, Nook went out and commanded 13 targets in the season opener, although he caught only 7 for 65 yards. Somehow, someway, Nick Westbrook-Ekine finished second on the team in targets with seven when Traylon Burks led the team in snaps, 90% compared to an 81% for NWI and 78% for Nook. The team played primarily from 11 personnel in week one, but did mix in both 12 and 21 personnel. On paper, Burks is the piece that meshes best with his quarterback, but as was shown last week, that could mean very little moving forward. Considering the shortcomings of the Tennessee offensive line, the presence of Joey Bosa and Khalil Mack on the Chargers off the edge, and the presence of more in-your-face corners on the Chargers in J.C. Jackson, Asante Samuel, and Michael Davis, it is likelier than not that Nook finds the sledding equally as difficult in this spot when compared to the Saints in their secondary. The Titans ran just eight plays from the red zone in week one, even though they kicked five field goals. Six of those were passes, and two were carries by Derrick Henry. 
That said, they had a third and 12, second and 20, third and 10, and third and 7 in those eight plays. Likeliest Game Flow This game environment is a test of competing wills. The Chargers likely want to speed things up and attack through the air, while the Titans likely want to slow things down and attack on the ground. There are many results in the overall range of outcomes that make this game environment best served to one-offs, due to these avenues of least resistance and team composition. But there is one extremely interesting piece of the pie that lends itself to a very specific mini-correlation that is likely to be extremely under-owned on this slate. So while the field is likely to be building around this slate from a likeliest scenario standpoint, closer to median projection, there are some fun things that can be done around those less likely, albeit extremely explosive, scenarios from this game. Again, more on that in the DFS+. The Raiders at the Bills kick off Sunday, September 17th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 47. Game Overview by Hilo Josh Allen is likely to have more time in the pocket considering the minuscule 10.8% pressure rate from Las Vegas in Week 1. Large expected boost to the downfield presences here, Gabe Davis and potentially Stephon Diggs. James Cook dominated backfield opportunities in Week 1, but still only saw 59% of the offensive snaps. Dawson Knox saw elite underlying usage in Week 1, 92.6% route participation rate, and 59% slot snap rate. Buffalo has been most susceptible to power rushing attacks, particularly those with breakaway assets. Josh Jacobs saw an elite 80% snap rate and 88% team opportunity share in week one and finished 2022 with the sixth most breakaway runs, 15. Devontae Adams and Jacoby Myers combined to account for a 73.1% team target market share in week one. Myers is currently in the league's concussion protocol following a vicious hit late in the fourth quarter last week. Somewhat quietly, both of these teams held pass rate over expectation values in the top half of the league in week one, with the Raiders checking in at 11th and the Bills checking in at 6th. There is one clear and obvious path for this game environment to erupt. More on this in the DFS Plus interpretation section. How Las Vegas will try to win. Josh McDaniels showed us that his concentrated offenses from years past are likely to continue into 2023. Two players accounted for 73.1% of the team's available targets, and one player accounted for 85% of the team's running back opportunities. Those players, of course, were Devontae Adams, 9 targets, 35.6% target share, Jacoby Myers, 38.5% target share, and Josh Jacobs, 19 of 20 running back carries and 3 of 5 running back targets. We have a pretty good idea of what the offense is expected to look like from the Raiders this season, beginning with run-balanced attacks which should be expected to maintain the emphasis for as long as they remain within striking distance. The final glaring observation from this team is that they lack much in the way of a downfield presence, which we saw translate into a moderate 7.0 intended air yards per pass attempt value from Jimmy Garoppolo in Week 1. Furthermore, the type of routes the wide receivers ran to open the season lacked the ability to allow for significant yards after the catch, as evidenced by the team's 3.1 yak per completion, 29th. The best chance for the Raiders to stay in this game the longest is via the run game, but they'll need some level of success through the air to keep the Bills from simply stacking the box against them, as they did against the Jets once Aaron Rodgers left the game. 
Either way, pure volume expectations for Josh Jacobs are among the highest on the slate at running back position. As was mentioned above, Jacobs returned from his holdout to immediately reclaim his workhorse role on this offense and should be a near lock to finish the majority of weeks in the top three in total volume this season. One of the aspects likely to aid the Raiders in this pursuit is the general tendencies of the Bills' defense to operate from nickel-base alignments. That typically results in one of the lower stacked box rates in the league. Furthermore, the Bills lost elite inside linebacker Tremaine Edmonds this offseason. In all, I expect the Raiders to want to control the ball for as long as possible on the ground against an opponent that is best attacked in that way. As was mentioned above, this pass offense was the most concentrated of any team in Week 1, with two players accounting for over 73% of the available targets. One of those players is in the concussion protocol after experiencing a lights-out event at the end of the game last week, Jacoby Myers. Should Myers gain clearance from his concussion, expect a similar setup against a Bills team that should filter most of the pass work against them toward the middle of the field, which is likeliest to benefit Myers over Adams, unless McDaniels motions Adams into the slot at a higher rate, which he only did in the red zone a week ago. Adams ran very few 7-9 routes, corner, post, and go, last week, instead living in the 3-6 realm, comeback, curl, dig, and out. This also exacerbates the one-dimensional nature of this offense as it allows safeties to creep up to a more shallow depth behind the linebackers, which likely explains the low yak completion from Week 1. The Raiders operated primarily from a 21 personnel in Week 1 through a 46% snap rate from fullback Jacob Johnson, with tight ends Austin Hooper and Michael Mayer splitting snaps almost down the middle. That meant only Adams and Myers saw a snap rate above 53% in Week 1 amongst pass catchers. How Buffalo Will Try to Win Josh Allen and the Bills did not look good in Week 1. Let's just get that out of the way right up front. That said, they rank 6th in pass rate over expectation, and their opponent in Week 2 is a far different defense than the one they faced in Week 1, the New York Jets. Overall, expect the same pass-heavy ways we have grown accustomed to over the previous three seasons out of Buffalo, with an emphasis on attacking deep built off of Stephon Diggs, the tight ends, and the running backs in the intermediate areas of the field. The Bills enter Week 2 on a relatively short week after losing to the Jets in the opening installment of Monday Night Football, a game that saw quarterback Josh Allen give the ball away four times. Knowing who Josh Allen is as a person and player, it is likely he is going to come out firing in Week 2 to get that sour taste out of his mouth. We talk a lot about team tendencies and which teams do or don't require their opposition to push them on the scoreboard to drive aggression. Allen and this Bills team fall into the category of, they can do it all on their own. James Cook dominated the team's opportunity share out of the backfield in Week 1, seeing 18 running back opportunities. 12 carries and 6 targets, compared to just 4 for Latavius Murray, 2 carries and 2 targets, and 3 for Damian Harris, 1 carry and 2 targets. That said, Cook managed a non-elite 59% snap rate and was largely ineffective with his opportunities, gaining 46 yards on the ground, 3.8 yards per carry, and 17 yards through the air, 4.3 yards per reception, 2.83 yards per target. Although the offseason reports were glowing for Cook entering his second season, we saw previous coaching tendencies under Brian DeBole carry over to Week 1 of the 2023 season, and the entirety of the 2022 season under offensive coordinator Ken Dorsey, who served as the passing game coordinator and quarterbacks coach while DeBole was in Buffalo. 
That means the roughly 60% snap rate and relatively low chances of Cook surpassing 20 touches in any given week this year makes him largely an efficiency and touchdown back, one that comes with proven concerns over efficiency. In fewer words, there are likely to be very few weeks this year where we're considering Cook for more than large field touchdown leverage off the Buffalo passing game. Finally, it's difficult to tell what the true intentions of the Bills are as far as red zone snap rate goes after week one, considering the team had but one trip to the red zone against the Jets, which is where Damian Harris saw two of his three opportunities. It's a tiny sample from which to make any sweeping assumptions. The glaring change in the Buffalo game plan from week one was the inclusion of rookie tight end Dalton Kincaid. The Bills went from one of the lowest jumbo personnel rates in 2022 to the highest in Week 1, running 12 personnel at the highest rate in the league. That included a 92.6% route participation rate, player in a route on a called pass play, and a healthy 59% slot snap rate for Kincaid. Them's are numbers higher than what we were hoping for coming into the season when we drafted Kincaid in the 11th round of best ball drafts. That hefty slot snap rate left only a 22% snap rate for Deontay Hardy, 16% for Trent Sherfield, and 10% for Khalil Shakir. As such, expect this offense to operate with Gabe Davis in a near-every-down role, Stephon Diggs in his typical and head-scratchingly modest 80-85% to snap rate, both Dawson Knox and Dalton Kincaid hovering around the 80-85% to snap rate range, and literal scraps left over for the secondary pieces in the offense. The most interesting aspect of this particular matchup is the relative lack of pressure we expect the Raiders to generate, considering their laughably low 10.8% pressure rate on a 29.7% blitz rate in Week 1, a stark contrast to the 24% pressure rate the Jets were able to assert a week ago. As in, we're likely to see Josh Allen regress, and regress hard, from the laughable 2.5 completed air yards per pass attempt he managed in Week 1 against the Jets, and more towards the 4.7 he averaged in 2022, second only to Tua Tagovailoa. Likeliest Game Flow Both of these teams played with moderate pace, 21st-ranked situation-neutral pace of play for the Bills, Raiders ranked 20th in Week 1, but were top 11 in pass rate over expectation. Furthermore, the Raiders exhibited the same extreme offensive concentration tendencies that we saw a season ago, and the Bills very clearly want to win games via the pass. That all adds up to clear paths for this game environment to erupt, albeit with the likeliest scenario leading to one clear and obvious path that is also highly likely to go overlooked on this slate. That said, the likeliest game flow involves the Bills asserting themselves through the air with minimal expected pressure generated from the Raiders, assuming Chandler Jones remains away from the team. Seriously, we hope he is mentally okay after his recent outbursts on social media. Without anyone capable of winning one-on-one along the defensive line outside of Max Crosby, we're likely to continue to see the team simply dedicate double teams in pass production to his side. That should force the Raiders to the air at gradually increasing rates as the game moves on away from their likeliest start, which is a run-balanced offense. The Giants at the Cardinals. Kickoff Sunday, September 17th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 39.5. Game Overview by Hilo Darren Waller missed practice on Wednesday, but was upgraded to limited on Thursday with an injury to the same hamstring that gave him issues last year. James Conner was limited in back-to-back sessions to begin the week with a calf injury. I expect he'll be fine for week two.
Jonathan Gannon's defense held its own in Week 1, likely attributed to the unique nature of his too-high base defense. More on this below. Joshua Dobbs managed just 132 passing on 6.4 average intended air yards in Week 1. Let's play a game. How many weeks into the season will the Cardinals get before they score an offensive touchdown? Wink the Madman Martindale against his derelict Arizona offensive line spells trouble. How New York will try to win. The Giants are coming off the most lopsided loss in franchise history with a 40-0 shellacking at the hands of the Cowboys. In that game, Daniel Jones took seven sacks, threw two picks, and fumbled the ball twice. Both were recovered by the Giants. That said, they could not ask for a better get-right opponent in the Cardinals, who are starting Joshua Dobbs for the second consecutive week and have dismantled their defense over the previous two seasons. Pass rate over expectation values and situation-neutral pace of play values mean next to nothing from their first time out considering the extremely negative game script and overall shortcomings from their offense. Last season under Brian DeBall, the Giants finished near the middle of the pack in those two metrics and were mostly a slave to the game environment in which they found themselves as a measure of their aggression. Considering the opponent this week, I'd expect them to approach things with a relatively conservative tone and an emphasis on execution. Saquon Barkley held a modest, for him, 64% snap rate in the team's Week 1 blowout loss, but handled 16 of 22 running back opportunities, good for a 72.7% team share. Barkley is also coming off a season where he ranks second in snap rate, 79.9%, and third in opportunity share, 80.1%, meaning we should expect him to continue to operate in one of the most robust roles in the league. The Cardinals actually held their own against the run in Week 1 against the Commanders, holding Washington to just 3.3 yards per carry on 28 attempts. Consider the matchup closer to neutral than we originally thought heading into the season, which is likely attributable to new head coach Jonathan Gannon. Matt Breida and Gary Brightwell are on hand to handle any change of pace duties required. The state of this Giants pass-catching core is one for the ages. They ran 12 personnel over 40% of the time in Week 1 with a mix of Daniel Bellinger, 63%, Darren Waller, 54%, and Lawrence Kager, 29%. No wide receiver played more than 67% of the team's offensive snaps, Paris Campbell and Darius Slayton, with Isaiah Hodgins, 60%, Jalen Hyatt, 36%, and Sterling Shepard, 20%, all seeing work as well. In a more competitive game, I would expect the top three, Slayton, Hodgins, and Campbell, to be closer to 80% considering the elevated 12 personnel rates. The Cardinals blitzed at a slightly above average rate in Week 1, 25.6%, but generated pressure at a low 17.9% clip. Gannon's defensive scheme operates primarily from a shallow two-high, which means the safeties are closer to the line of scrimmage than in a normal two-high alignment. This unique look typically generates more confusion from an opposing quarterback, which I believe to be the reason the Cardinals were able to hold Sam Howell to just 19 for 31 for 201 passing yards in Week 1, despite the relative lack of elite abilities amongst the Arizona defensive pieces. How Arizona Will Try to Win The Cardinals understandably held the 29th-ranked PROE in Week 1. Makes sense considering they acquired their starting quarterback two weeks to the day before the start of the NFL season. As in, Dobbs got all of 11 practices with the Cardinals before he was asked to take over the offense. 
In total, they threw the football 30 times and ran the ball 25 times, giving us a solid idea of what the offense would like to do in a relatively tight game environment. From a personnel standpoint, the Cardinals were one of the more concentrated offenses in the league in Week 1, and they operated primarily from 11 and 12 personnel, 33% 12 rate. Expect the Cardinals to want to slow the game down, hunker down on defense, and see how long they can remain in the game. Veteran running back James Conner proved that he is the absolute rock of this offense. He handled an absurd 84% snap rate, second, saw 79.2% of the team's available running back opportunities, fourth, and ran 23 routes, seventh. That said, his gross 0.63 fantasy points per opportunity through one week ranks 35th in the league, understandably low. This could become a regular theme for Connor this season, who is going to be on the field a ton but is likely to require multiple touchdowns for any semblance of weekly ceiling. Considering the Cardinals managed just two trips to the red zone against the Commanders, this too could be an issue. Expect Keontae Ingram to serve as the primary change of pace back for as long as Connor remains healthy, with Ingram the likeliest to fill in should Connor miss any time. The matchup on the ground should be considered a net neutral with the shortcomings of the Arizona offensive line. We spoke to the massively concentrated nature of this offense in week one above, which is evidenced by an extremely condensed snap rate amongst the top skill position players. Connor saw his elevated 84% snap rate, rookie wide receiver Michael Wilson saw a 90% snap rate, Marquise Brown saw 84%, Rondale Moore saw 68%, elevated 12 personnel, and Zach Ertz saw 77%. No other non-tight end saw more than seven offensive snaps. While we would normally be jumping out of our seats to target an offense like that, realize the Cardinals managed just 132 yards through the air, and a 32-year-old tight end coming off of a multiple ligament-damaged knee injury led the team in targets and put up 3.5 yards per reception. And the team failed to score an offensive touchdown. Their lone touchdown came from a two-yard strip-sack fumble recovery touchdown. So yeah, concentrated. Good. Not good at playing football, bad. That said, the Giants blitzed at a 32% clip in week one. Hello, Wink. But managed to generate pressure only 16% of the time. Knowing Wink Martindale, expect the Giants to bring the heat once more, which could be more effective against the ramshackle offensive line of the Cardinals. Expect a ball-out quick aerial design, likely benefiting Connor, Ertz, and potentially Wilson the most. Likeliest Game Flow Honestly, this game sets up to be a battle of attrition, but not really played by teams who can outlast each other offensively, but teams that can stand to not lose the game on their own the longest. That might sound recency biased, but it's honestly how poor these two teams look to start the season. Had the Cardinals doubled over and died on defense to begin the season, we might be having a different discussion. But Jonathan Gannon was able to confuse a young quarterback enough in Week 1, Sam Howell, that I think some of that might carry over into Week 2 against a quarterback not really known for the best progressions, pocket awareness, or decision-making in Daniel Jones. The elevated blitz rates from Wink Martindale's defense are likelier than not to get home at a higher rate than what they showed in Week 1 against a far superior offensive line from the Cowboys, meaning an increased rate of stalled drives and disrupted possessions is to be expected from the Cardinals. In all, this game has all the makings of a bloody slugfest, with not much in the way of upside potential. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level.
The 49ers at the Rams kick off Sunday, September 17th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 45. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The 49ers offense picked up right where they left off with Brock Purdy in 2022, scoring 30 points and rolling over their competition. San Francisco's defense is one of the top units in the league and is built to give the Rams fits moving the ball. Los Angeles is riding high, coming off a surprising Week 1 win in Seattle, but now has to deal with one of the top teams in the NFL. The 49ers' offensive personnel is built perfectly to attack this Rams' defensive scheme. The Rams took everyone by surprise last week, but their talent deficiencies are likely to be exposed against a talented, well-coached, and focused 49ers unit. How San Francisco Will Try to Win For most teams, when evaluating how they play, people reference their run-pass splits and their tempo. To me, the 49ers are a different animal altogether. The way this team is built schematically and personnel-wise feels more like a basketball team than a football team. Let me explain. There are five players on a basketball court. In football, the offense has 11 players, but five of them are offensive linemen who can't touch the ball, which leaves six players to share the rock. Quarterback Brock Purdy rarely, if ever, runs the ball, and the 49ers basically ignore one of their five remaining players, whoever is in at their second tight end, third wide receiver, or second running back. This leaves a situation where one of four players, Christian McCaffrey, Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, or George Kittle, is touching the ball on basically every play for them. To illustrate my point, in the first three quarters of the 49ers' season opening win in Pittsburgh, one of those four players touched the ball on 48 of the 53 offensive plays that didn't end in a sack. Brock Purdy is the point guard of this basketball team, and Christian McCaffrey is going to get the most shots. But the balance here is not about run versus pass as much as it is about the fact that they have four game-breaking players you have to account for at all times. This week, San Francisco looks to continue their dominance tour on a trip south to Los Angeles. The Rams' defense played well in their season-opening win over the Seahawks, but that probably had more to do with Seattle's offensive line injuries and issues than it did with the Rams' defense being far better than we expected. While I do think Rams' defensive coordinator Raheem Morris is a good coach, I think his lack of talent is going to catch up with him in this matchup, with an insanely talented unit that has an elite scheme. The 49ers have now scored 30-plus points in seven of nine games that Brock Purdy has played and finished for them dating back to last season, and the way they play really doesn't have to change based on the opponent. Brandon Ayuk and Christian McCaffrey had the big games in Week 1, but Kittle and Debo will have their opportunities every week. They had six and nine opportunities respectively last week, and their ability to break tackles and bust off explosive chunk plays should come in handy against a Rams scheme that has played an extensive amount of zone defense and tried to keep the game in front of them the last couple of years. The biggest issue Seattle had was they just couldn't even get first downs to sustain drives. San Francisco has too much talent to have that issue, and the Rams managed only four hurries and two sacks against Seattle, despite multiple offensive linemen getting hurt during the game. This should result in a lot of clean pockets for Brock Purdy, and he should have plenty of time to find his weapons in openings in the zone. While the 49ers may not break off the massive gains this week, there should be plenty of chunk plays of the 10 to 25 yard variety. The 49ers' balance will not change for their opponent, just their means of getting to it. How Los Angeles Will Try to Win The Rams may have been the biggest surprise of Week 1. 
playing without Cooper Cup and entering the year with a defense that had been gutted of most of its talent, most people, myself included, expected Seattle to take care of business in relatively easy fashion. Head coach Sean McVay and company had other plans, however, as they went into Seattle and pulled off an impressive victory. After trailing 13-7 at halftime, Los Angeles outscored Seattle 23-0 in the second half. A big part of that success had to do with their defense limiting what Seattle could do offensively, stuffing the run and preventing the Seahawks' wide receivers from getting isolated matchups. The Seahawks actually scored on their first three possessions of the game, then fell apart, failing to score on their next six possessions. The Rams' offense was able to control the game thanks to the ineptness of Seattle. There ended up being decent volume for the passing game due to their overall play volume, but they had a pretty even run-pass split as they figured things out with Cooper Cup. Rookie wide receiver Puka Nakua missed practice Thursday with an oblique injury, potentially meaning they will be even more shorthanded on Sunday. The Rams were able to control the game against the Seahawks in the trenches, shutting down Seattle's running game and keeping Matthew Stafford clean all game. As a matter of fact, Seattle's defense had the second lowest pressure rate, 7.7% per pro football reference, in the NFL in Week 1, while San Francisco was second in the league at an incredible 46.2%. The Rams will try to keep things balanced again, but who knows how long they can stick with that plan. The likely approach in this spot will be schemed short area passes on first downs to try and get ahead of the sticks for favorable down-a-distance situation. If those plays are unsuccessful, two yards or less, I'd expect the Rams to try the same thing on second down. If they do gain three to five yards on first down, I'd expect a second down run to try and get the first down, or a third and very short. If they gain six to nine yards, I'd expect some type of shot play knowing they have another play to get the first down if it fails. The Rams are going to have to get the ball out quickly against this 49ers pass rush and simply don't have the perimeter talent to be overly aggressive on early downs or to overcome long down and distance situations in this matchup. Likeliest Game Flow Hard to imagine a bigger letdown spot for a team than the Rams here. After a huge road win against a Seattle team that seemed to be overlooking them, the Rams now have the attention of their opponents and welcome one of the most talented and well-coached teams in the league. The likeliest game flow in this spot involves the 49ers defense jumping on the Rams early in this game and the 49ers offense picking the Rams' zones apart. Los Angeles has talent deficiencies on the defensive side of the ball thanks to their all-in approach in pursuit of their Super Bowl a couple of years ago. Coaching was able to mask that last week against a less talented and less creative offense. But Kyle Shanahan should be able to isolate those overmatched defensive players, and the 49ers personnel is far better suited to make a sit-back-in-the-zone team like the Rams pay than the Seahawks were. DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, and Jackson Smith-Najigba are very talented wide receivers, but their skill sets are best at getting open and making plays on the ball in the air. On the flip side, the 49ers skill players are literally built to get the ball in space and then create the yardage. The Jets at the Cowboys kick off Sunday, September 17th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 38.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson It is hard to imagine two teams having more opposite results to begin their season than these two high-profile organizations. If Aaron Rodgers were playing, this game would have significantly higher scoring expectations. Brees Hall and Dalvin Cook will likely have to carry the load for the Jets, whose offense is right back where it spent 2022. 
This sets up as a defensive battle between two of the top units in the league. Turnovers will likely drive the outcome of this game. How New York will try to win The Jets had possibly the most bittersweet way to start a season on Monday night. Winning a nationally televised game in prime time with a walk-off, game-winning punt return touchdown is about as exciting as it gets for a regular season game. Despite that, the news of a torn Achilles tendon that ended the season, and possibly career of Aaron Rodgers, has cast a dark shadow over the Jets' organization. The Jets are now left trying to pick up the pieces on what was expected to be a year where they became contenders in the AFC. Given the state of the AFC and how many upper echelon QBs are in the conference, the Jets are now left facing an uphill battle that seems destined to look very similar to 2022. In January of this year, if you asked a knowledgeable NFL fan what they thought the worst possible offensive play-caller QB combination in the league would be, they probably would have answered Nathaniel Hackett and Zach Wilson. We are now in store for 16 more games of exactly that. The Jets managed a paltry 140 passing yards in Week 1 and ran the ball on 55% of their offensive plays. This week, against a ferocious Dallas defense, the Jets will undoubtedly use a similar approach and rely heavily on Brees Hall and Dalvin Cook. It seems highly unlikely that the Jets will put much on Zach Wilson's plate in this matchup and should be prioritizing getting the ball out of his hands very quickly. The goal of these sections of the NFL Edge is to figure out the strategy of each team. There really isn't a ton of nuance to get into on this side of the ball, however, as the approach seems very clear and predictable. Rely heavily on the running game and hope the defense can give you a chance for something fluky to happen late in the game. There are some creative things that a team in this spot could do to take advantage of an aggressive Dallas defense such as draws, screens, and quick hitters. They could also use some play action and take some deep shots hoping to let their strong wide receivers make plays on the ball. Unfortunately, my faith in Nathaniel Hackett's creativity is very low. Even when he had success in Green Bay, his concepts were very vanilla and straightforward, so a sudden burst of creativity on a short week seems unlikely. Long term, the Jets may find ways to open things up, but their best and possibly only hope here is to bring the Cowboys down to their level offensively. How Dallas will try to win The Cowboys put together exactly the type of game Mike McCarthy has said he wants them to play in Week 1. The defense was dominant and the offense didn't turn the ball over. Mission accomplished. This week, they return home to face the other New York team, who is coming off a huge win but reeling from the loss of their Hall of Fame quarterback. It is hard to get a read on the Dallas offense after their first game due to the fact that they scored two defensive touchdowns in the first half and were basically able to coast the rest of the way against an inept Giants offense. The off-season narrative around this team, however, was that they were going to slow things down and focus on ball control. The Cowboys now appear likely to be without starting wide receiver Brandon Cooks, who sprained his MCL in Week 1, which would likely serve to cement that run-first mentality. From a very basic perspective, there are three ways that a game can play out in the first half. 1. Team A builds a lead. 2. Game stays within a possession either way. 3. Team B builds a lead. For this game, it is extremely unlikely that Team B, the Jets, would build a lead. Their offense just isn't in a spot to put up a bunch of points and a half. Really, the only way that would happen is multiple Dallas turnovers leading to easy scores, and we know Dallas is unlikely to be aggressive and risky with the ball early in the game. 
Even in the case of early turnovers, the Jets would go into such a shell protecting their lead that Dallas would effectively stay in the game and wouldn't really feel any pressure to panic early and become overly aggressive. That leaves the other two scenarios as the most likely. Either Dallas builds a lead or the game stays within a possession. Really, in any of those scenarios, the Cowboys should be able to stick with their ball control approach deep into the game. From a tactical standpoint of how the Cowboys will attack, we should expect them to look to isolate Tony Pollard in space and find easy throws for Dak Prescott where he can get the ball out quickly and let his skilled players make plays after the catch. There really is no reason they should be taking chances down the field in this game given the lack of a threat on the other side of the ball and their expressed desire to rely on their defense. The Cowboys will hopefully find creative ways to scheme the ball to C.D. Lamb and get him away from the coverage of cornerback Sauce Gardner. Regardless of how they do it, it is unlikely to happen in risky ways. The name of the game for Dallas is Don't Mess This Up. Likeliest Game Flow The most likely game flow here is a slow-moving game that could turn ugly if the Cowboys are able to get a lead and or cause a turnover or two from the Jets early in the game. We touched on the basics of the game flow scenarios in the Dallas section, as we can be very confident in the Dallas approach regardless of game flow, and we know that if the Jets are forced into an aggressive approach, it could be a recipe for disaster. There are very few avenues for this game to become both high-scoring and competitive, unless Zach Wilson and Nathaniel Hackett can both become something they've never been before while preparing on a short week. The Commanders at the Broncos kick off Sunday, September 17th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 39. Game Overview by Mike Johnson If you're looking for offensive efficiency, you've come to the wrong place. The Broncos' receiving core continues to take hits with injuries and inconsistency, keeping them from being a feared unit. Both defenses had strong Week 1 performances, although it is easy to question the quality of their opponents. A lack of downfield aggression or explosiveness from the running games will make it hard for scoring to really get going. The head coaches in this game, Sean Payton and Ron Rivera, have a long history of facing each other as both were rivals in the NFC South for several years. How Washington will try to win The Washington offense was honestly pretty disappointing in Week 1 playing at home against a left-for-dead Arizona team who appears to be fine with a lost season, the Commanders struggled to move the ball all game. Offensive coordinator Eric Bieniemy came over from Kansas City and was expected to spark things, but they failed to be much of a threat for the majority of the game. Washington scored a touchdown on their second drive, which was a six-play, 91-yard possession. After that, they struggled to move the ball the rest of the game, and even their 10 fourth-quarter points happened as a result of turnovers leading to short fields. Denver's defense looks solid in Week 1, but the Commander's offense has a much different profile than the Raiders did. First of all, Raiders QB Jimmy Garoppolo is a pocket-statue type of QB who isn't going to do much with his legs. Sam Howell is very different in that regard. Likewise, the Raiders' offense is very concentrated as they have three players who soak up almost all of their usage. On the contrary, Washington can spread things around quite a bit with two running backs, three or four wide receivers, and two tight ends all finding their way into the mix. The Broncos' defense barely got any pressure against the Raiders, but their secondary is strong enough that they can still keep teams from being too explosive against them. Unless Denver's offense is able to prove something, it seems likely that Washington will have a relatively conservative game plan early in this one. 
The running backs, tight ends, and Curtis Samuel should be pretty busy as Washington works the shore areas and middle of the field rather than challenging Patrick Sertain and company on the perimeter. I wouldn't be surprised to see a couple of shot plays dialed up opposite Sertain. While the schemes are different in many ways for this defense from last year, Bienemy should be at least very familiar with the personnel for the Broncos' defense after facing them twice a year for his whole time in Kansas City. How Denver will try to win Denver's offense had some bright spots in Week 1, although the overall product was still nothing to write home about. Perhaps the most encouraging thing for the outlook of this team that happened all game was on the opening kickoff when the Broncos tried a surprise onside kick. They recovered it, but the player had touched the ball too soon, resulting in a flag that took the ball away. That play, however, was clearly a message from Sean Payton that this team will be more aggressive and seek opportunities to make plays after last year's Nathaniel Hackett squad avoided risks at all costs. This Denver offense is not a finished product by any means, as they still are not close to full strength. Tim Patrick and K.J. Hamler were lost for the season this summer, Jerry Judy did not play in Week 1, and Greg Dulcich left the game early with an injury as well. Judy is expected back this week, while Dulcich is expected to miss. Javante Williams and Sam J. Pirine split backfield duties, but neither looked overly explosive. Sean Payton teams have traditionally used the running backs extensively, and Russell Wilson likes to check the ball down, so we are likely to continue to see a heavy distribution of opportunities headed their way after they were used on 55% of the Broncos' plays in Week 1. Russell Wilson was 30th out of 32 quarterbacks in average intended air yards in Week 1, continuing to show many signs of the regression he had in 2022. The fact that he threw the ball only four yards downfield on an average against a secondary that was one of the worst in the league in 2022 is certainly discouraging, as is the lack of usage for exciting rookie wide receiver Marvin Mims, who was expected to provide speed and a deep threat to open up the offense. While the addition of Judy should help things, the inability of this team to force opponents to defend all areas of the field just shrinks the space and makes every possession a grind. We know the backs are going to touch the ball a lot, and we know the passes are going to be in the short to intermediate areas of the field on most plays. The Broncos also played slowly in Week 1, ranking 28th in situation-neutral pace, and are likely to continue that trend here. Likeliest Game Flow The results of the two games these teams were part of in Week 1 were 20-16 and 17-16. Given the nature of the play-calling tendencies on both sides of the ball and the lack of explosiveness we are expecting, a game in the mid-30s to low-40s is an extremely high probability once again. My gut tells me that Denver may find some early-game wrinkles to throw out there to build a lead. Washington and Sam Howell have ways to go to prove they are going to be the aggressive unit we have come to expect from B-enemy offenses. There is a clear recipe for both teams to lean on their backfields and short area targets to move the ball. This should result in drives that are able to occasionally sustain and get first downs, but will have a hard time finding the end zone. This, once again, feels like a glorified field goal contest for the first half of the game, with the outside chance that things can open up through either surprise deep shots or turnovers and short fields. 